1: Find Triviality on all your favorite
0: podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast.
1: My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century.
0: Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify.
1: A number of years ago, I was in a local dollar store, and I saw they were selling boxes of bazooka bubblegum. Now, I hadn't had a piece since I was a teenager, so I decided to splurge and spend a whole buck on the box. And I was incredibly disappointed when I got home. I have to tell you, it tasted exactly as I remembered it to be. But there were two major changes that I noticed upon removing the wrapper from one of the pieces. First, the Bazooka Joe comics that I saved for prizes as a kid, they were gone. There were no comics in there. And while the gum still measured the same exact dimensions, the backside had a waffle-like pattern. In other words, the manufacturer had basically hollowed out the gum to cut costs. It was just one more example of shrinkflation. Now, the main place we make our purchase of bazooka gum was at Joe Rota's stationery store in Monticello, New York. He had set out baskets of different individually wrapped candies that we could choose from, you know, as every kid's dream come true, and then we make our purchase and head next door to watch a movie at the now-defunct Rialto Theater. And to be honest, I don't remember the exact price of any of his candy, but two pieces for five cents seems to pop into my head. But whatever the true price was, inflation has made certain that there's very little that one can purchase for a nickel today. The reality is that many people wouldn't waste their time bending over to pick up a five cent piece if they saw it lying on the ground. Now I would, but I know a lot of people who wouldn't. It simply has too little value. It was a teenage boy's nickel that played a significant part in the capture of a major Soviet spy in the 1950s a spy who would be the subject of a Steven Spielberg movie that starred Tom Hanks I am Steve Silverman and today I present to you the case of the hollow nickel This is the useless information podcast
0: Useless information
1: It was during the evening of Monday June 22nd of 1953 the 13-year-old paperboy Jimmy Bozart knocked on the door of a six-floor apartment that was located in a building at 3403 Foster Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. Now, this was part of a massive housing project that was known as Van Vanderveer Estates and has since been renamed Flatbush Gardens. And Jimmy was there to collect the 35 cents that was owed to him for delivering the past week's Brooklyn Eagle. The two teachers who lived there, and they were identified in the press only by their last names of Ash and Donnelly, they were generous tippers, and this day was no exception. They handed Jimmy 50 cents, and that consisted of a quarter and five nickels, and off he went. Now, I know I have a lot of foreign listeners, so let me just explain if you're not familiar with the American uh, currency system. And of course, I'm sure everybody knows that the basis of our currency is the dollar, Well, our dollar is divided into 100 cents. Okay, one cent would be a penny. Five cents is a nickel, which is what we're talking about here. Ten cents is a dime. And 25 cents is a quarter. Okay, back to the story. Anyway, Jimmy was very appreciative of that 15 cent tip. That's about $1.50 today. But he didn't want to be rude and count the money in front of the teachers. So he walked away and he headed down the stairs. And then he opened his hand to count the coins And you know what happened next. He dropped them. So he set the bundle of newspapers down and began to collect up the coins. But when he picked up one of the nickels, Jimmy noticed something peculiar about the coin. That is, he only had the back half of the coin. You know, the portion with the engraving of Thomas Jefferson's Monticello on it. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never had half a coin. They just don't split like that. Anyway... Half a nickel is worth nothing, so he was searching for the other half as if two halves could add up to a whole. Well, it had bounced a short distance away and he was able to locate it, but when he picked it up he noticed it was something inside of that front portion. It appeared to be a small piece of photographic film. Upon returning to his home in nearby 4304 Avenue D, he told his dad Fulton about his peculiar find. Curious, Jimmy held the film up to a light, looked at it with a magnifying glass, and saw what appeared to be the photograph of a file card with six to eight numbers on it. His dad was unsure of the significance of the film, but told Jimmy it'd be best if he turned it over to the police. And Jimmy knew just the officer to turn it over to. You see, a girl named Carolyn in his eighth grade class just happened to be the daughter of a police officer. So Jimmy made his way over to their house, but Carolyn's dad wasn't home, so Jimmy just headed off with the nickel. When her dad arrived home and learned of Jimmy's discovery, he and a few of the officers went to the beaux residence to retrieve the coin. They spoke with Jimmy's dad, but he didn't know where his son was or what he had done with the coin. Now his mother, that's Mary Bozart, she was off playing bingo, so there was the possibility that Jimmy had given her the coin. So they raced over to the bingo hall and had Mrs. Bozart paged over the PA system. But no one came forward, so they requested that the game officials allow them to examine all the nickels. But they refused, so Mrs. Bozart was paged one more time. But this time she came forward and stated that she had given the nickel to Jimmy to buy an ice cream cone with. Now, since they had no clue what Jimmy looked like, Mrs. Bozart accompanied an officer as he cruised the neighborhood searching for him. And they found him playing stickball, and he was asked if he still had the nickel. He said that he did, and then he handed the coin over to the officer. And after that, Jimmy put the split nickel out of his mind. What he was unaware of was that the mysterious nickel ended up in the hands of the FBI in Washington, D.C., Under magnification, the film was found to consist of 10 columns of numbers, and each column was filled with either 20 or 21 rows of seemingly random numbers. Now, all these numbers were six digits in length. But as hard as cryptographers worked at it, they were unable to decipher the meaning of all those numbers. The front of the coin was dated 1948 and it had a tiny hole drilled right through the letter R in the word trust. You know, in God we trust. Clearly, the hole was there so someone could insert a fine pin to pop the coin open. What was more interesting is that the back of the coin was from a different nickel. It had been minted between 1942 and 1945. And they knew this because it had been made from a copper silver alloy and that was only used during World War II when there was a shortage of nickel. While they were unable to decipher the code, investigators wondered if the coin had been a trick coin used by magicians. But one novelty salesman pointed out that this was highly unlikely. Quote, It's not suitable for a magic trick. The hollowed out area is too small to hide anything aside from a tiny piece of paper. A comparison of the microfilm's typewritten characters with the FBI's reference file of typewriters manufactured in the U.S., it was of no help. So investigators concluded that the numerical code had been typed on a foreign typewriter. Efforts to solve the mystery of the coin continued throughout 1953, then into 1954, then on into 1955, and throughout 1956. They were getting nowhere. Then, in May 1957, the United States Embassy in Paris received a phone call from a Soviet spy named Rhino Heyhanen. He then went to the embassy and told an official there, quote, I'm an officer in the Soviet Intelligence Service. For the past five years, I've been operating in the United States. Now I need your help. Heyhanen had decided to defect. Heihanen was born on May 14, 1920, near Leningrad, to Finnish parents. In 1939, he obtained a certificate to teach high school and secured a position at a primary school. But shortly after this, the Soviet Union invaded Finland and Heihanen was conscripted into the Soviet NKVT secret police, that's a forerunner of the KGB. Having been proficient in the Finnish language, Heihanen was sent into the combat zone to interrogate prisoners and to decipher captured documents. After World War II ended, Heihann continued on as an intelligence officer. In 1948, he was ordered to leave his wife and family, learn English, and then move to Finland. There he assumed the name of Eugene Nikolai Mackie, a man who had been born in Idaho in 1919, after which the Mackey family had moved to Finland. Now, as Mackie, Heihanen met and later married his second wife, Hannah, but she was totally unaware of his true identity or that he was in training to spy on the United States. The two arrived in New York City aboard the Queen Mary on October 21, 1952. The couple settled in Fishkill, New York, which is about 75 miles or 120 kilometers north of New York City. During his five years in the United States, the quality of Heihanen's work just deteriorated. Basically, he became a raging alcoholic. As a result, he received orders to return to Moscow, and he began the long journey back home. But he feared to be sent to a Soviet camp, so Heihanen went to the U.S. Embassy in Paris instead. His defection was kept secret, and Heihanen was flown to the U.S. to be questioned by the FBI. A search of his fishkill home uncovered a hollowed out Finnish coin hauntingly similar to Jimmy Bozart's hollowed out nickel. Bingo On june 5, fifty seven, FBI cryptographer Michael G. Leonard was able to use information that he obtained from Heyhanen to decode the microfilm's code. It read as follows one We congratulate you on a safe arrival. We confirm the receipt of your letter to the address v, repeat v and the reading of letter number 1. 2. For organization of cover, we gave instructions to transmit to you $3,000 in local currency. Consult with us prior to investing it in any kind of business, advising the character of this business. 3. According to your request, we will transmit the formula for the preparation of soft film and news separately. Together with your mother's letter. Four, it is too early to send you the gammas, encipher for short letters, but the longer ones make with insertions. All the data about yourself, place of work, address, etc., must not be transmitted in one cipher message. Transmit insertions separately. Five, the package was delivered to your wife personally. Everything is all right with the family. We wish you success. Greetings from the comrades, number one, 3rd of December. After years of having been unable to decode the message, there was little to be learned from this one once they had. It was thought that this was the first message sent by the KGB in Moscow to Heihanen, one that he never received. How the nickel containing the message ended up in circulation is still unknown. Now, it could have been that someone simply found the coin before Heihanen had gotten his hands on it, or Heihanen himself may have accidentally made a purchase with it. Heihanen told investigators he reported to two different Soviet spies while he was in the United States. From the time of his arrival in 1952 through early 1954, he worked under a man that he only knew as Mikhail. Based on Heihanen's description, investigators determined that Mikhail was Mikhail Nikolayev Svirin, who had served as the first secretary to the Soviet United Nations delegation in New York from August 1952 through April 1954. Those dates coincide perfectly. Upon being shown a picture of Svirin, Heihanen stated, quote, That's the one. There's absolutely no doubt about it. That's Mikhail. Well, they now have positive identification, but there was one really big problem. That is that Zverem was out of reach of the U.S. justice system because he had already returned to the Soviet Union. It was the second spy who Heihanen only knew as Mark and had taken over after Zverem had left the United States, he proved far more difficult to identify. Well, we're gonna take a quick break here to hear from the sponsors of today's episode, but when we return, I will reveal the identity of Mark and what happened to both him and Jimmy Bozart.
0: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with Nerdwallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Kat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you
1: do when the woman you love dies? Just before the break, we learned that Soviet spy Heihanen had just chosen to defect to the United States and that the hunt was on to find his contact, who was only known by the codename Mark. We pick up the story there. The problem was that Heihanen mostly met up with Mark on the street, in parks, and other places, although occasionally they did take uh, trips along the east coast to places like Albany, Atlantic City, and Philadelphia. As a result, Heihanen was able to provide investigators with a general description of Mark. He was, you know, in his 50s, gray hair, balding, average height, average build. That's really not a whole heck of a lot to go on. But Heihanen recalled that Mark was an accomplished photographer. And on one occasion, he had accompanied him to a storage room that was located on the fourth or fifth floor of a building that was in the vicinity of Clark and Fulton Streets in Brooklyn. Well, that's a multi street area, but it wasn't long before FBI agents narrowed it down to a building at 252 Fulton Street, which was the home to numerous artist studios. Emil R. Golfus, a photographer who rented room 505 and storage room 509 in the building, was their main suspect. Golfus lived a quiet life, but he was friendly with other artists in the building. And while he was mainly a photographer, Goldfuss was a good, although not great, painter. He was particularly friendly with another tenant in the building, that's famed artist Bert Silverman, and no, he's not related to me, and he painted an oil portrait of Goldfuss. And if I think of it, I'll put a link to it on my website. Anyway, in that painting that Silverman did, Goldfuss is seen sitting comfortably in his studio with his arms crossed. Surrounding him are brushes and tubes of pigment, and one of Golfus’s paintings hangs on the wall behind him. The only hint in Silverman's painting that Golfus could be a spy is that there's an oversized shortwave radio, it's pretty prominent in the picture, and it's been flipped up on its side, supposedly because it got better reception that way. They weren't certain if Golfus was the spy they had been looking for, so the FBI began surveillance of the building. But golfus had disappeared. He had told several residents that he was headed south for a seven-week vacation, but investigators wondered if he had simply fled the country. Then, on May 28, 1957, a man resembling golfus sat down on a park bench across from the building. And he watched as people entered and exited the building, and then he simply stood up and left. But agents opted not to follow him, believing that he would eventually return. At 10 p.m. on June 13th, the lights suddenly went on in Golfus's apartment. At 11.52, the room went dark and Gulfus stepped out of the building. This time, the agents followed him to a nearby subway station and all the way to the Hotel Latham on East 28th Street. Two days later, the FBI showed a photograph that they had taken with a hidden camera of Gulfus and they showed it to Heihanen. He stated, quote, You found him. That's Mark. At 7.30 a.m. on June 21st, 1957, there was a knock at Golfus's door at the Hotel Latham. Moments later, three men burst in and they arrested him. He was charged with illegal entry into the United States and taken by immigration agents to McAllen, Texas to await deportation. The Soviet embassy was informed and they requested that Golfus be deported at once but the U.S. government stalled, secretly building up their case against this suspected spy. A search of his hotel room and studio turned up a treasure trove of spy equipment. They found radio receivers, cameras and film to produce microdot images, there were cipher pads, there were a number of hollowed-out items like coins, bolts, pencils, and cufflinks. Several messages were also recovered, And while some were cryptic, one made it clear that Gulfist knew that he was being followed. Quote, I bought a ticket for the next ship, Queen Elizabeth, for next Thursday, 131. Could not come because three men are tailing me. I don't know about you, but if I was a spy, I would have found a way to get out of the country at that point. Two American birth certificates were also discovered. The first was a forged certificate from Martin Collins, and that's the name he registered at the Hotel Latham with. The second was for Emile Golfus, and that was the name he assumed in his artist studio. In that case, the birth certificate was real, but it clearly didn't belong to the man they had just arrested. That's because the real Emile Golfus, who was born in New York City on August 2, 1902, he died at two months of age. And Golfus used many other names as well. For example, when he first entered Canada in 1948 with a European passport, that one was issued to one Andrew Coyotis. Then, after sneaking into the United States, he would do his banking using the name of Alan Winston. And supposedly he had many other names that he had used over the years. So just who was this man that the feds had in custody? He wasn't saying much, but he did admit that his name was Colonel Rudolf Ivanovich Abel. It would later be learned that this was an assumed name also. And some people think that he just took that name to signal to the Soviets that he had been captured. Abel was born William Genrikovich fisher which is anglicized as William August Fisher, in the United Kingdom to Russian emigre parents. He'd been accepted to London University in 1920, but after the Russian Revolution, his family picked up and moved to Moscow the following year. And since he was fluent in five languages and trained as a radio operator, Goldfuss, a.k.a. Abel, a.k.a. Fisher, whatever you want to call him, he was the perfect candidate to be a Soviet spy. The U.S. government continued to collect evidence and build their case against Abel. So on August 7, 1957, a federal grand jury indicted Colonel Rudolf Abel. The feds claimed that he was the highest-ranking Russian spy ever captured within the United States. Then, in September of 1957, Jimmy Bozart would once again be drawn back into the investigation. You see, Jimmy was now a 17-year-old freshman at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, which just happens to be right down the road from me, and he was asked by an FBI agent if he'd be willing to tell his hollow nickel story in court if it was necessary. Jimmy agreed to do so, and he became a minor celebrity in the press. At trial, Jimmy was one of 69 witnesses called to the stand. While not essential to the government's case, Jimmy's statements backed up the testimony of the man who really sealed Abel's fate. That was his assistant, Reino Hayhanan. On October 25, 1957, a jury took just three hours to find Abel guilty on all counts. Then, on November 15, Judge Mortimer W. Byer sentenced Abel as follows— with all to be served concurrently. Count one, conspiracy to transmit defense information to the Soviet Union, 30 years imprisonment. Count two, conspiracy to obtain defense information, 10 years imprisonment and a $2,000 fine. Count three, conspiracy to act in the United States as an agent of a foreign government without notification, five years imprisonment and a $1,000 fine. Now, theoretically, Abel could have gotten the death penalty, but he didn't. And his attorney, that's James B. Donovan, filed an appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court and argued that the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, it prohibited unreasonable search and seizures. But the conviction was upheld in a 5-4 to ruling. Abel's time in prison would be short, and that's because on February 10th of 1962, he was exchanged on the German Glenica Bridge for the American U-2 pilot Francis Gary Powers. Now, if this all sounds vaguely familiar, the bridge would be coined the Bridge of Spies during the Cold War, and it was also the title of Steven Spielberg's 2015 telling of Rudolf Abel's capture and prisoner exchange. Mark Rylance played Colonel Abel, and Tom Hanks was lawyer James Donovan. Now, if you've never seen the movie, I definitely recommend it. I really, really enjoyed it, although it has been a couple years since I saw it. It's not 100% factually correct, but it's pretty close. While that coin in the microfilm that it contained may not have led investigators directly to Colonel Abel, it was an important piece of the puzzle. And Jimmy Bozart, he never got that nickel back, but it did change his life forever. An anonymous citizen rewarded him with an Oldsmobile 98, which Jimmy sold one year later. He then used that money to purchase stock in the Texas Gulf Sulfur Company. In a 2015 interview, he told a reporter, quote, We had a tip that they had discovered the largest sulfur deposit ever in Canada. It turned out to be true, and we made a bunch of money. From that first windfall, Bozar would go on to be part of many successful businesses. That included vending machine companies, restaurants, discotheques, and hotels. And to think that it all started with a single nickel. Who said that a nickel doesn't buy much these days? Oops, I think that was me. Anyway, useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Well, that brings another episode to a close. I should mention I've had that story sitting around in my pile of possible stories, and it's a pretty big pile. I probably had it for more than a decade, maybe even close to 20 years now. But I decided to put it aside when the movie Bridge of Spies hit the theaters. But with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I thought it'd be a good time to revisit it and tell the story of The Hollow Nickel. As I mentioned before, if you enjoy this podcast, please tell someone else you think may also enjoy it. That could be a relative, a colleague, classmate. You can create a post or add a thread to Reddit, Twitter, Facebook, or wherever. Just let them know about a favorite episode, the podcast itself, of course, or whatever seems appropriate. Doing so will help to bring new listeners to the podcast, so I thank you in advance for helping to grow the show's audience size. Anyway, if you'd like to contact me about this episode, the podcast itself, the website, or whatever, please do so through my email. That's steve at uselessinformation.org. You can use Facebook Messenger, or you can use the contact form on my website, which is uselessinformation.org. Anyway, thanks for listening, and take care, everyone. Bye.